This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Happy 2020. Thanks so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. It's my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agriculture. I've said numerous times on this show and elsewhere that I believe agriculture exists to solve our most complex problems to meet our most basic needs. It doesn't get much more basic than solving for hunger and food security. In places like the U.S. where I live, it can really get easy to lose perspective of the struggles of those who live in food insecure areas. I want to do more on this show to highlight the innovations that are happening to create a more food secure planet. I'm pleased to have on the show today Ambassador Kenneth Quinn. Ambassador Quinn spent the last 20 years as president of the World Food Prize Foundation, right up until actually the day of this interview, which was his last day on the job before retirement. Prior to the World Food Prize, he had a 32-year career as an American diplomat and was the U.S. ambassador to Cambodia. The World Food Prize is an international award recognizing achievements of individuals who have advanced human development by improving the quality, quantity, or availability of food in the world. Since 1987, the prize has been awarded annually to recognize contributions of any field involving world food supply. So that includes food and agriculture, science and technology, manufacturing, marketing, nutrition, economics, poverty alleviation, political leadership, and social sciences. The prize and foundation behind it were started by Dr. Norman Borlaug. If you don't recognize that name, he's the father of the Green Revolution and the winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. He's credited with saving over a billion people from starvation and malnutrition. Definitely go watch the free PBS documentary entitled Freedom from Famine or read the book The Wizard and the Prophet to learn more about Dr. Borlaug. Just an incredible man and incredible contribution to, to agriculture and to the planet in general. So Ambassador Quinn, who's on the show today, was tasked with carrying on Dr. Borlaug's legacy at the World Food Prize Foundation. Two worked alongside each other for about 10 years until Dr. Borlaug passed away in 2009. Enjoy this interview with Ambassador Kenneth Quinn. He begins with a little bit of his fascinating background. Well, my name is Kenneth Quinn. I uh, grew up in Dubuque, Iowa, went to high school and college there, graduated from Loris College, went off to Madison, Wisconsin, where I took the Foreign Service exam. It was a free test. Somehow I passed that or they got my scores mixed up with somebody from Harvard or Yale. In any event, I became an American diplomat in 1967, go to Washington, D.C., sworn in at the State Department and expecting to be sent to Paris or Vienna or London or some you know fancy place in Europe. And instead, I was sent to Vietnam in the uh, middle of the Vietnam War. So being a, a city kid from Dubuque, I had no connection whatsoever to agriculture, and I should add no interest in it, and had, in fact, my first job out of Loris was working in the hide house of the Dubuque Packing Company, laying out animal hides from the slaughter. So that even encouraged me to study even harder to get an inside job. But I was out working in villages in Vietnam as the Green Revolution was beginning, the same years that Norman Borlaug was in India and Pakistan taking his miracle wheat 
to farmers there. I was working in village as Miracle Rice showed up. And here I am 12,000 miles from home watching the transformation that occurred with these new seeds that could grow a crop uh, that would be two or three times larger in yield and in half the time. But the other element I observed was that we were also fixing the old farm-to-market road that ran through the eight villages I had, and we had fixed it in four. And wherever we fixed the road, farmers used the new seeds, life changed dramatically, and, and it was not only powerful in uplifting uh, nutrition and the livelihoods and the well-being of people, it, better than anything else, undermined the Viet Cong insurgents. So here I am standing in Sedek province of Vietnam in 1968, suddenly understanding what transformed Iowa and Illinois and Indiana and Wisconsin. It was building all those farm-to-market roads that brought out the seeds that Henry Wallace and others were developing at Iowa State University, at land-grant institutions. And roads and seeds became the formula that ran through my life and my career as an American diplomat for 32 years. I ended up being the U.S. ambassador to Cambodia, dealing with the Khmer Rouge, the worst genocidal mass murdering communist terrorists of the second half of the 20th century, who we got rid of by my using $13 million of government money, of our taxpayer money, your money, my taxes, to build roads and to bring in new seeds and eradicated these terrible terrorists and genocidal mass murderers. And for the last 20 years, as president of the World Food Prize, which was created by Norman Borlaug, I have had the incomparable privilege of building forward his vision that the World Food Prize, this $250,000 annual award, could come to be seen as the Nobel Prize for Food and Agriculture. So every October, we have this wonderful ceremony in the Iowa State Capitol, which is spectacularly beautiful building, which looks like it's from Paris or Vienna. And so it looks like the Nobel Prize. In fact, it looks better than the Nobel Prize. I've been to the Nobel Prize. And around that, we hold a three-day conference called the Borlaug Dialogue, which we bring speakers from all around the world. It's where Bill Gates came to launch his multi-billion dollar global initiative to eradicate hunger and poverty. We have this terrific high school program for high school students to get them interested in global food security. And then we have a wonderful building in uh, downtown Des Moines called our Hall of Laureates, the Norman Borlaug World Food Prize Hall of Laureates that spectacularly restored its highest level of energy efficiency possible. And it's the place where we provide the inspiration we house Norman Borlaug's inspiration to those going forward to endeavor to fulfill his mission of eradicating hunger and poverty 
all around the world. So sorry, I went on probably a little too long, but that's kind of where I've been and what we do. No, not not long at all. I, I think it's fascinating. And, and maybe would you be able to highlight a couple of those laureates throughout the years that stand out to you in your mind to describe to the audience the type of impact that's being made by these folks? Yes, yes. So our laureates come from around the globe. They come from 18 or 19 different countries from the United Nations, more from the U.S. than any place else. But we have six or seven from from India. We have six from Africa. Now, when I came, there were no women laureates. Now we have six. So some of the really interesting stories to be told with them is, say, a Pedro Sanchez, native of Cuba, comes to the United States, becomes a, a scientist. He's a soil scientist. His work is in soil, including in Central America, in Peru, and in Africa. How can you, by planting trees next to crops, cross-fertilize in that way, keep the soil healthy, make it even uh, restore the health to it so that plants and crops will grow very, very uh, effectively. We've had laureates who are the pioneers of modern agricultural biotechnology. Uh, Mark van Montague from Belgium and Mary Dell Chilton from Syngenta, Rob Fraley from the United States. They were the ones who first developed the ability to manipulate the seeds and genes in order to make crops so that they can survive better given the climate volatility we're experiencing. Can they still produce through drought or in floods or in saltwater intrusion? Norman Borlaug believed so strongly in the power of science and biotechnology. Akinwumi Adeshina, the president of the African Development Bank, man who has had a, an extraordinary impact on improving agriculture in Nigeria and now through the African Development Bank, spreading opportunities across Africa, affecting millions. Catherine Bertini, an American who led the UN World Food Program, making it the single most effective program in developing food to starving people anywhere around the world in, in the midst of the worst crises, keeping people alive. But if I were to single out one laureate, that's kind of the, the most interesting and inspiring story, it would be Daniel Hillel, an Israeli Jewish irrigation pioneer who at the very beginning of Israel is working there to make the deserts bloom, use innovations in irrigation. And in 2012, he is chosen to receive the World Food Prize. And the Secretary General of the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon, flies to Des Moines to be part of the ceremony, to join in handing over our prize to Hillel, who has been nominated by three Muslim scientists from three Muslim and Arab countries. And there in the audience of the Iowa State Capitol, in the front row, there's an Israeli diplomat. And next to him is Princess Haya bint al-Hussein, the daughter of King Hussein of Jordan, the UN messenger of peace. On the other side is an Arab sheikh from Qatar. And in the audience, um, numerous 
Buddhists and Hindus and Christians and people of other faiths and everybody standing and cheering for this achievement of this Israeli irrigation pioneer. He and that event demonstrated the theme which really runs throughout my career, my life, and which I think is at the heart of the World Food Prize and what Norman Borlaug did, peace through agriculture. The last symposium we did in uh, 2019, October, we, uh, the title of it was Pax Agricultura, Latin, Peace Through Agriculture, looking back to the peaceful times of 2,000 years ago when the Romans built roads everywhere all over Europe and had this several hundred year long period of peaceful development with agricultural prosperity. That's what I look for in the world, building peace through agriculture. That's Iowa's great legacy, whether it's George Washington Carver giving advice to Mahatma Gandhi, whether it's Soviet Premier Khrushchev coming to Iowa in the middle of the Cold War in 1959, probably the most dangerous moment of all human history, nuclear weapons in the U.S. and Soviet Union poised to be fired at each other. And Khrushchev and Roswell Garst show that, well, maybe there's some things where we can work together. We can build in some buffer, some understanding, some sense that, well, the other guys aren't quite so bad as we thought, and help keep those weapons from ever being fired. So Herbert Hoover, taking food to feed six, seven, eight hundred million people at the end of World War One from America, probably America's single greatest humanitarian. The uh, corn, uh, the Iowa hog lift, rushing Iowa hogs fed with Iowa corn to Japan just 15 years after the end of World War II to help restart the animal industry in Yamanashi Prefecture, which had been wiped out, decimated by uh, terrible typhoons. So these are the themes and linked to these laureates that I find so compelling. Extremely compelling. No, I thank you so much for sharing those ex examples with us. It, it was over 50 years now, I guess, that you kind of had that revelation in Vietnam about it starting really with roads yeah. and, and seeds. Is that still the case? I mean, are, are these laureates and the leaders in food security still focused on roads and seeds or has, has uh, addressing the problem changed or the solutions changed at all? Well, I would say this way. There are certain places in the world that have addressed the issue of building roads. The primary example of that is China. You know, I went to China in 1979. Probably 70 to 80 percent of the people of China lived at the poverty level or below. And rural road penetration, which is mean roads upgraded with access, was maybe 50 percent. Around that same time, I was in Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Cambodia, same thing. It was uh, 50%. And war was raging. Now, if you go to China, China is the most transformed country on the face of the earth. And it's at about 98% rural road penetration. Roads are everywhere. Development is everywhere. What happened in the United States has happened in China. 
research centers built that were are like the Iowa States and the land grants, agricultural research is taking place, and the roads allow extension workers to get it out to the farmers. China and the U.S. have a great parallel there. When I'm in Africa and I want to get crowds excited, I say, you have to make a big choice. Are you going to follow the American model or the Chinese model? Everybody goes, ooh. And I say, the, the good news is they're the same model. <laughs> it's the same thing. Research, roads, and policy. Agricultural policy is critical. And the Chinese have changed their policy. That's why they have been so successful. If you uh, go to Southeast Asia, Vietnam, where I'm going in a week or two, now they're at about 95% road penetration. Africa is not. Africa is still below 50%. South uh, Asia, wherever the 1 billion people are who live in chronic global food insecurity, you'll find it's uh, roads when I, that are missing. When I addressed the UN in 2013 in New York on World Food Day, I offered this analysis. I said, take the UN world hunger map and lay it out flat. And you'll see on it these shaded areas that are beset with chronic food insufficiency, with hunger, with famine, with people at risk of severe malnutrition. And they're marked on that. And you, as you might imagine, these shaded areas are in Africa, South Asia, some Central America, a few places like that. So then you put on top of that an overlay, another map that shows where are the conflicts, the insurgencies, the terrorism, where are they emanating from? And you'll see that the shaded areas of conflict and terrorism and insurgency largely are coterminous with the areas of food insecurity. And then lay on top of those two, the world rural road map and highway map. And you'll see that where the roads end is where insurgency, terror and conflict begin and where hunger and poverty and malnutrition begin. Where the road ends is where all of these terrible afflictions that cause so much human suffering, conflict and hunger, where they all begin. So why don't uh, more, I would think it would be in, in everybody's best interest, especially in, in the lens of, you know, defense and, and world yeah. peace to, to be building these roads. Why isn't there more investment in them? Well, <laughs> I, I, I don't know for sure. Why there isn't? I'm always asking myself that. I'm, you know, sort of the, the, the rural road evangelist going around talking about sometimes I think it's too simple. But I would say this. I think in America, most Americans don't understand that connection and don't understand the history of how our states were developed. So if you go to any land grant, You'll see at one end of the campus is the College of Agriculture, and the other end is the College of Engineering. But there's not a lot of connections between them. There's not anybody who teaches the powerful catalytic combination of roads and seeds. 
Now, when I met Norman Borlaug for the first time in 2000, when I retired to take this job, I was worried because here he was, farm boy from Howard County, had his fingers in the dirt all life. And here I'm some American diplomat. You know, he probably thought I was some fancy pants who had been at, you know, cocktail parties uh, all my life. And so I met him. Um, we're sitting uh, in this nice kind of restaurant around a table. And I start telling him my story about roads and the impact of roads and seeds in Vietnam when I was a 26-year-old rural development advisor. And as i saying this, poor log, all of a sudden, he slams his fist on the table, you know, bang, and, and shouts, roads! And I go, oh my God, you know, I'm going to be fired before I even start in the job. And he says, you're absolutely right. Roads are the critical thing. If you don't have roads, you might as well not grow all those crops because you can't get them to market. So the bond between Norman Borlaug and me over the 10 years we worked together until his death in 2009 was over roads. That was what the binding between us. And Dr. Borlaug had won the Nobel Peace Prize. What, getting to kind of the history of the World Food Prize Foundation, right. what inspired him or convinced him that there need to be a separate prize just for food and agriculture? So he wins the Nobel Peace Prize, and he's the first person in agriculture. And he said, you know, they, I had had this achievement, but they didn't have any place to put me. So they put me through, as he put it, the window of peace. So he goes to the Nobel Committee afterwards and said, you realize, you understand, there really needs to be a prize for agriculture. Could you please get one started right away? And they say, oh, Dr. Borlaug, you know, we're so sorry, but it's not in Alfred Nobel's will and we don't have the money and so, you know, and so they're very nicely telling him they can't do this. So Borlaug sees that, you know, the biggest challenge of the 21st century, perhaps the biggest challenge humans have ever confronted is can we grow enough food to sustainably and nutritiously feed the 9 to 10 billion people who will soon be on our planet? And Borlaug is trying to find how could he get one started? And eventually he, through a, through a, a colleague gets introduced to the chairman and CEO of General Foods Corporation in New York. So they're a food company and they kind of like the idea, but they don't want to have a world agriculture prize. They want to have a world food prize and it can encompass agriculture. And so they put up the money for it and it starts, is founded in 1986 and the first prize is given in 1987 to Dr. M.S. Swaminathan of India, who had been a collaborator and partner with Borlaug in bringing the Green Revolution to India. And it's going great for a couple of years, but then the uh, General Foods, for reasons that have nothing to do with the World Food Prize, is taken over by Kraft and Philip Morris, and new guys in suits come in and say, how do we save money in a merger? And, well, we don't need this General Foods World Food Prize anymore, and it's about to go out of existence. 
and Borlaug and a couple of the other founders show up in Des Moines looking for anybody to put up some money and they uh, meet John Ruan Sr., trucker, also from small town Iowa, born one month apart from Borlaug in 1914. So they're about 77 years old and decide their John Ruan will become the new sponsor of the World Food Prize, relocates it to Iowa, been here ever since. And um, about nine or 10 years later, they hire me to take over it and said, your job is simple. Just fulfill John Ruan and Norman Borlaug's dreams. Borlaug's dream was make it the wor- make it the Nobel Prize for food and agriculture. And Ruan's dream is make Des Moines and central Iowa the food and agricultural capital of America. So just, you know, nothing too difficult, except it seemed like Mission Impossible. And I'm desperately calling the State Department to see if I can unretire, because what chances there are of ever doing this? But, you know, they weren't going to have me back. And I said, I got to give it my best shot. And, you know, it's up to others whether we've come close. But people say our ceremony is spectacular and it's the Oscars of agriculture and it's the foremost international award for food and agricultural achievement. And Sir Gordon Conway said our symposium, which we call the Borlaug Dialogue, is the, quote, premier conference in the world on global food security, close quote. And our youth programs are so good, we've received FFA's highest award for our pioneering youth education programs to inspire high school students to follow Dr. Borlaug's footsteps. And and as you look out, uh, you know, I I know you spend a lot of time talking to people all over the world. Where where do you see, you know, currently the most pressing or urgent need for work to be done when it comes to food security? Well, clearly, wherever the one to two billion people who will live in chronic food insecurity are located, that's where the most desperate work needs to be done. And that's in Africa. Africa is the centerpiece. So I think by 2046, say, when Iowa celebrates its bicentennial, and that'll be the year, around the year, when we get to 9 billion people on the face of the earth, probably America is going to have enough food to eat. Western Europe will, but Africa, will it succeed or not? And so it's so critically important to invest in the agricultural research and build agricultural research capability in Africa. It's so critically important to build the infrastructure down which agricultural development will flow. It is so critically important to educate the next generation, inspire the next generation, including young women and men. Those countries that make use of all of their human resources are going to be the ones that succeed. So infrastructure, research, education, extension, and maintaining peace so that there is a stable trading system because in order to feed people all around the world, countries that grow more food than others have to export 
And to be able to do that, we have to have a stable trading system. And we have to be prepared to deal with the changes from climate volatility. There's all sorts. People want to argue about climate change, but I believe in climate change. Don't believe in climate change. If you talk to any farmers, they will tell you there is a great deal of climate volatility. One year it's floods, next year it's drought. They've got to be able to deal with that. To deal with that, you have to have the seeds that can perform in adverse conditions. We have to have the precision agriculture that can study the atmosphere, can predict for farmers when water is going to be available, when's the best time to plant, how deep to put the seeds, when to insert uh, certain amounts of irrigation with trip irrigation, all applying science to all of these issues. It's critical to do that, to bring the power of science to help feed the 9 to 10 billion people who will be here very soon. Absolutely. As you think about kind of your your 20 years leading the organization, what do you hope uh, as you get ready to retire after today, what do you hope is your legacy on on, uh, the World Food Prize Foundation and on global food security in general? Oh, gosh. Well, I, I certainly hope that the linkage between peace and agriculture will continue to be seen, that it'll be seen as vitally important, and that within our own country and within other countries, that agriculture will have a more and more prominent place and concern in national security considerations. I hope that the legacy of the youth programs that we've built will continue to grow, that we will continue to inspire those students, and about two-thirds of the students in our program are young women, and two-thirds are students who have no background in agriculture. They get hooked on all the issues associated with rural development, with food production, with ending hunger, and that we will continue to draw that next generation into the struggle, that we continue to inspire young people, that Norman Borlaug's legacy will remain alive and be spreading and so that it will mean that the next norm or the next norma will be there following in his footsteps, doing the scientific research and innovations, the field work, the extension work, the fighting hunger. We need all the best minds to do that. And I hope that the Norman Borlaug Hall of Laureates here in Des Moines, will be a reminder of my role and of Iowa's great agricultural and humanitarian heritage, and so that Iowans will continue and see that role to be played by our state of being the home of the Nobel Prize for Food and Agriculture. Great. And just uh, one last question here for, for the average person listening to this. Maybe they are a farmer or rancher in the U.S., or maybe they work in agriculture. Maybe they're just interested, but, you know, they're pretty established here, but would like to do something to contribute to a more food secure planet. Is there anything that they can do short of, you know, uh, uh, picking up and moving out there and helping something, something that they can start small and, and maybe oh, get involved? Gosh. Oh, gosh. There's all sorts of uh, wonderful programs. You know, there's 
If you go to religious programs, NGOs, Bread for the World, Heifer International, the leaders of those two programs were World Food Prize laureates and in 2010. Programs like that, not just exclusive to them, uh, you know, there's Catholic Relief and there's Lutheran Immigration and the Jewish programs through Mazon. So you can personally get involved in alleviating hunger on an individual basis, working through programs like that. I hope people be attentive to supporting colleges of agriculture and 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 telling legislators, both our federal legislators and state legislators, this, that America is in danger of slipping from its position as the global leader in food and agriculture research, that we've been in that position for over a hundred years, one of the great, great achievements of America. But we are now not funding sufficiently the public research that's needed. And other countries, most notably China, are funding and putting more money in. We need to support our public universities, land-grant universities, and others. We need to have the research in nutrition, in medical areas. We need to have it in agriculture. We need to have it in veterinary medicine and crop science, all of these, and we're not putting money in there. And of course, I hope to go to worldfoodprize.org, check out our website, and donate to the World Food Prize. We're Norman Borlaug's place of inspiration. We bring leaders from the world, all around the world to the World Food Prize each October and sign up and come to our events. Come here and participate. We have a terrific symposium every October, worldfoodprize.org. And if you want to know anything more about me, I have a website. Kind of tell a lot of stories from my career. It's called, it's kind of a long name, but it's called the Ambassador Kenneth Quinn Archive.org. And uh, I've got a lot of video recordings on there and speeches I've given. If you have trouble sleeping at night, just go to that, turn on one of my stories or something. You'll be asleep in a minute or two. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ambassador Quinn. This has been a, a, a motivational, inspiring interview, really. It, it, oh, it, it kind of gets me excited about the work that is being done. And uh, congratulations to you on, on 20 years of lead, leading such a, an important effort well, in global food security. So, Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And warmest wishes for the new year. Great success to everybody who listens out there. Thanks so much to Ambassador Quinn for being on the show. I'm truly inspired by the work they do at the World Food Prize Foundation and that of all of their laureates as well. I hope to make it out there to Iowa and get to see that Hall of Laureates for myself. If you know of anybody that is doing innovative work in the area of food security globally, either in the U.S. or, or beyond, uh, let me know. Drop me an email, tim at aggrad.com. I'd like to feature more stories related to innovation in areas that are food insecure on this show here this year. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. We'll be back next week with another Ag Innovator. 
Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week.